0: You can open up your Bible to Romans 7. Mm. Romans 7, that's where we're going to be at this morning. For the rest of the spring, uh, after uh, so this week, next week, we'll finish out in Romans 7, and then we're going to spend some time, Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, looking at the triumphal entry, the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And then after Easter, we're going to do six weeks on the topic of heaven, death, what happens when we die, and hell. Um, and so just some real light things after Easter. Um, I've gotten so many questions in the last year about Heaven. And I want to spend some time reflecting on heaven with you. Uh, And then this summer, we'll spend our time in the Psalms. We'll come back in August. We'll do a series on what is a person? A question that for, it seems like, millennia, we've had a lot of certainty around. And over the last 30 or 40 years, we've had decreasing levels of confidence in how to answer the question. So we're going to ask, what is a person? What does it mean to be a creature? What does it mean to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl? And how does that affect our personality, our community, our sexuality. These are topics we'll address in August. And in the fall, we'll spend our whole time in Romans 8. So this is the second to last sermon you're going to hear on Romans for a while. And I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it for you. This one and next week, we have some heavy lifting to do. Because the back half of Romans 7 is considered, even by scholars of Paul, to be one of the more complicated passages in the letter to the church in Rome. So there's some real heavy lifting we have to do here. So I hope you came ready um, maybe with a pencil, maybe with a notepad, because there's a lot to explore here. I think there's a lot of benefit here, but it's deep. And a lot of beneficial things typically tend to be deep things. So there's no surprise there. But I just want to prepare you this week and next week. I we have to really put on our, you know, I don't know, our, our student glasses. I don't know what you put on, you know. Log into your Zoom classroom. I don't know. Um, I grew up in a home where um, I, it was split. It was divided, but maybe not in a typical division. My mother was a rule maker and keeper. My dad was a rule breaker and bender, okay? Um, I can remember we went to D.C. uh, whenever I was in seventh grade. My dad took me on this uh, men of legacy trip in seventh grade, a, a rite of passage trip. And we toured all these historic places in Washington, D.C. And, you know, in these places, there are places you cannot go. Like in the Lincoln Theater, they're places they do not want you to go uh, that are marked off with velvet rope and signs. And every single one of those times, my dad would say, You know, I wonder if we hang back a second, if maybe we could sneak up there. And I would always be like, We shouldn't, we shouldn't. And he'd be like, Hey, listen, what's the worst that's gonna happen? We Throw thrown out the Lincoln Theater, we're never coming back, you know? Um, I was like, Well, ask Lincoln what the worst thing to happen in the Lincoln Theater was. <laughs> My, my father was very comfortable breaking and bending rules, but there's a difference between breaking rules knowingly and breaking them unknowingly. Sometimes we don't realize we're breaking a rule because we actually don't know there's a rule at all. I think about my daughter oh, at Christmas this year. We went to a Christmas light show in Southeast Texas where I grew up. My daughter loves Christmas lights. And she saw out in the middle of this lawn a huge light up Santa Claus in a sleigh, all the reindeer, and she wanted to get closer to it. It was about 50 yards out there. And I said, Well, go ahead and run on out there. Go check it out. And right when she runs out onto the lawn, immediately someone emerges from the dark, someone we couldn't see, who must have been posted up for exactly that reason. And she said, Get off that lawn right now. And my daughter was so mortified. She was so embarrassed. She ran back to me. I could immediately see on her face, that guilt, that embarrassment. She had broken a rule, but she had done so unknowingly. She didn't know it was a rule. We talk a lot about conviction and guilt when we talk about the gospel. We talk a lot about what it means for God's word to convict us, for the Holy Spirit to make us aware that we are broken. But I fear that sometimes we begin to educate ourselves out or maybe the world begins to numb us to the actual healthy sting of conviction. I think that it's very easy for us, particularly in a world where we are increasingly told there's really nothing that is wrong. It's very easy for us to go, well, if nothing is really wrong, then should I ever feel guilty? In some ways, we've kind of pathologized guilt. We've suggested, listen, if you feel guilty, really, you should stop feeling guilty as fast as possible. Like, absolve that feeling immediately. And yet, sometimes guilt, the guilt that comes from healthy conviction, not unhealthy condemnation, but healthy guilt and conviction can be like the sting of the doctor's syringe. It can be providing you help when you really need it, even though it's sharp to feel. And last week, Pastor John did... Such an amazing job. I don't know if you caught this last week. If you didn't, I want to strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed it. Because he's so wisely distinguished between conviction and condemnation. I thought it was honestly golden. And I would strongly encourage you if you missed it to go check it out again. But there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is good. Conviction is the mark of a gracious God saying, stay away from evil. Conviction is the keep out sign on a door that behind it is full of terrors. Conviction is a good thing. And conviction does produce guilt. It produces that sense in our conscience where we go, that was wrong. I feel bad about having done that. I feel bad about not doing that. Conviction is good because it's God saying that way lies evil and destruction and death. Conviction is the work of a gracious God looking to steer us away from evil. Condemnation is different. Condemnation is not the work of a gracious God. Condemnation is the work of an evil enemy. And this evil enemy is not looking to merely help you see that something is bad. This evil enemy is trying to convince you that you are bad. And you're so bad, God can never love you. And that is crucially different. And I think that there's been a great degree of confusion for us in our present moment over whether or not it's healthy and holy to sometimes feel conviction. And I want to tell you right now, it's a normal part of the Christian life to experience conviction. It's a normal part of the Christian life to experience that there is a gap between who God is and who you are. And I think Paul in Romans 7 is trying to get us to learn how to live in that gap. And so I want to read Romans 7, 7 through 12. And after I read it, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. The reason that we do that is that we want to give thanks to God that he has spoken. So you're invited to respond, thanks be to God. Let me read Romans 7 beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul has been instructing the church in Rome towards holiness and obedience. That's Romans 6 and 7. In Romans 5, he was giving us the, the rock solid doctrine of our salvation. The doctrine of justification. That by God's grace in Jesus Christ, we can receive something we desperately lack and God radically has, which is the righteousness of God. And God graciously provides it in Christ Jesus. But Paul wants in Romans 6 and 7 for the church to not misunderstand. Just because they have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that how they live is of no consequence. He wants them to see that God is inviting them to walk in his better ways of obedience. And his audience is the mixture of Gentiles and Jews. Now that's important because he's talking about the law here. And for the Jewish audience in the church in Rome, the law would have been to them something of great reverence. The Torah, the law, was really kind of the central place When an early Israelite is asking themselves, how does God want me to live? They're answering that question with this, the law, the Torah. That is how God wants me to live. Now, when we talk about the Torah, we're talking specifically about the first five books of the Old Testament. And so when Paul says law, he really means three things. Now, you can write this down, okay? The first thing he means is he means specifically the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with that in Exodus 20. So he's meaning that, but he doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. He also means the whole of the Torah law, meaning he means all of the law, all of the standards that God has laid out in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he also means, the third thing here, is he means the scope of the story that the first five books of the Old Testament tell. Because the first five books of the Old Testament are not just law. That law is received and given and extended within a story that helps it to make sense. Now, before we jump into this, I have to help you understand this. And maybe you already get it. If so, then you can help others. A lot of times people will look back at the first five books of the Old Testament and they'll say, huh, this law kind of doesn't make any sense, right? Gosh, it kind of seems arbitrary, But they'll take the law and they'll divorce it from the story that it's in. And they'll be like, golly, this this seems so weird. God wants them to wear these certain kind of clothes and not these other kind of clothes. Man, he's really capricious. He's really fickle. He's really arbitrary. But that's kind of like turning to just a random page in a novel and being like, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, no, no, no. The law makes sense within the story that it's embedded in. And when Paul is referencing the law here, he's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not just talking about all of the rules and regulations. Though he is talking about both of those things, he's also talking about the story, the story that the law emerges in. And in Romans 7, 6, he's just told them, you've died to the law. So there's a couple of questions that we're kind of faced to ask here. Because I wouldn't blame you if you read this portion of Scripture and said, oh, you know what? I feel like this is a little bit confusing because in other places in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, you're going to hear God call us to think on the law, to meditate on the law, to practice the law. You're going to hear the law referred to as life, sweeter than honey, more nourishing than food or water. And yet here, it kind of sounds like Paul has some bad things to say about the law, doesn't it? I think you could read this and go, hold on, is God's law bad? And does God's law kill? Because it kind of sounds like it. Paul wants us to learn how we are to relate to the standards of God now that we have received grace. And I want us to look at it together. Let's ask the first question. Is the law bad? Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. We've seen Paul use this phrase. Strong, emphatic, no. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through that commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So this sounds like, whoa, well, hold on then. Why did God give the law? If the law just showed up and all of a sudden produced in us bad things, then shouldn't he have just not given us the law at all? Shouldn't he have just refrained from telling us what his expectations and standards were? I think you could read this and come to that conclusion. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think there's three things that Paul is pointing out that the law does. The first one, the law uncovers sin with clarity. The law uncovers sin with clarity. The law is like an x-ray machine. We may not like what it shows, but it's vital that we see it. The law was like an x-ray machine. It uncovered sin with clarity. The law gave us an honest and accurate account of what God wanted and where we were at in relationship to it. The law uncovers sin with clarity. Now, when we read God's word, I know there are times when it stings us, right? This sword, as Hebrews 4.12 calls it, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and body and spirit. It cuts us to the quick. And the reason it does that is because God uses his word and his law like a scalpel to help us see where the problem is and to help us begin to treat it and acknowledge it. The law isn't bad, but the law uncovers sin with clarity, and we don't often like what it shows us, Okay? The law uncovers sin with clarity, but it also uncovers sin with conviction. The law uncovers sin with conviction. God's law, his word, it doesn't just show us our sin. The spirit of God uses it to bring conviction. Uses it to help us feel, and I want you to hear this, a healthy guilt. Okay? I don't want you to live in unhealthy condemnation. But I do want you to experience healthy conviction. I want you to experience healthy guilt. The sense of saying, this is not right. This is wrong. Because God has shown us what is right and what is wrong. What is true and what is false. And it is good not for you to live in a pit of shame. But it is good for you to experience the rhythms of conviction. The sense of I have fallen short and I have need. Now, what you do with that need is vital, and we'll come to that. The law uncovers sin with clarity. It uncovers sin with conviction. And it uncovers our desperate condition. It uncovers our desperate condition. Right? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known I was dead. Paul is not saying that the law killed him. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying the law showed him he was already dead from the start. Paul is saying that what you think, that when you're born into this world, is that you are actually alive, and the law reveals actually that's not the case. Actually, you've fallen short. The law doesn't kill. The law shows us our desperate condition, and that is that we're born into this world, we might be physically alive, but we're born into this world spiritually dead. The law uncovers sin with clarity, it uncovers sin with conviction, and it uncovers our desperate condition. Now, let me just maybe help you make sense of this. In college, I lived with six other guys in one townhome for three years, okay? Really packed in there, okay? It was, I, I don't know how colleges get away with such a thing, uh, but they seemed to do it, um, and we were there, and we were living in one townhome, six other guys, and if you came into our townhome at night with all the lights turned off, and you walked through our kitchen, you'd say, it's not so bad in here, right? But you come in the morning, you open up a few windows, you turn on the lights, it would be like Gordon Ramsay's kitchen nightmares, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it would scare you, it would startle you, Right? The law is like a light turned on in a filthy place. That's what the law does. It's like a light that's turned on in a filthy place. You've watched CSI. You've watched Law & Order. They walk into a place that looks pretty clean, pretty simple, pretty basic, nothing unusual. Then they turn the lights off. They bring out that UV light. They start shining it around, and all of a sudden, you see some stuff, right? You see some stuff that you would prefer to remain hidden. The evil, the dirt, the filth, the death. God's law reveals what we would prefer to remain hidden. Just how bad the problem is. And just how desperate we are for God to do something about it. The law reveals just how bad the problem is. The law is going to give you a strong sense when you consider it and you meditate it, meditate on it and you read it and you think on it. The law is going to point over and over again that there is a God and you are not him. It is gonna demonstrate that God is good and that you fall short. It is, you're going to see with increasing clarity the gap between the holiness of God and the way that you live. And in that place, in that position of clarity and conviction and desperation, you have an opportunity. And that opportunity is to cry out to God and to say, I see my great need for you. Will you intervene on my behalf? I see how desperate I am. I need you. It awakens within us an urgency, a fervency, That God must move in power and grace and love and mercy if we are to have any hope at all. Is the law bad? No. The law is not bad, but the law does show us where the bad is. The law does show us where the bad things are. Paul keeps going, though. And you'd be well within your rights to not just ask, is the law bad, but does the law kill? Because look at what he says in verse 9 and following. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, hold on. He says, pastor, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So does the law kill? Yes, it kills. But again, this is not what Paul has in mind. In the, in the Greek translation here, it, it, I'm telling you, this does us no favors. I, I'm going to be honest with you here. Okay? This back half of Romans 7 is, 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 is tricky and technical and wordy. And so you are, I, I, I want to be clear. It's not like Pastor Kyle has some special uh, channel to the Holy Spirit, and I discovered this on my own. I was reading and studying the same things you could read and study. I was having to pour over this because, you know what? When I read it on first glance, I'm left with the same questions, okay? So I just want to eliminate the gap that you might think is there. It's not, okay? This is a lot of study and a lot of reflection, a lot of things that you're invited into as well. And to this question, does the law kill? You'd be well within your rights to ask that question because it sounds like what Paul's saying is God gave us the law and then guess what? I thought it was going to give me life. It did it and gave me death. So what's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying what God intended to illuminate my desperation, I used to try to secure my own deliverance. What God intended to illuminate my desperation, I used to try to secure my own deliverance. The problem with the law isn't that God told us what was good. The problem with our response to the law is that when God told us what was good, we said, you know what, God? I think I got this. I think I can nail this. I think I can do this. And that quest for autonomy, it's not just at the root of legalism. It's at the root of the sin in the garden. It's the first sin to say, you know what, God, I think I got this. And Paul is saying, particularly for his Jewish audience, but for all of us who have hearts that are bent to saying, you know what, I can do it on my own. He is telling us, if you approach God's law that way, it will not be a source of life for you. It will be the condemnation of your death because you cannot do it on your own. You can't fix it. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're not strong enough. You're not tough enough. There's no way for you to life hack your way into fidelity and faithfulness to the law. It's not going to happen. You need a new engine. You need a new foundation. And that's a work that only God can accomplish. You see, sin twists the law. God intended the law to be a tutor to us. A tutor, showing us the ways of wisdom and righteousness. But our sinful response to the law is to take this tutor and to say, you know what, this isn't going to be a way, I'm going to make this my way, I'm going to do this on my own, and what was intended to be a tutor ends up becoming a tyrant, a tyrant that condemns us over and over again from falling short. The law was meant to be a blessing to a people who had already received the righteousness of God, but it will be a curse To those who try to seek righteousness anywhere else but Christ. The law was meant to be a blessing to those who would receive the righteousness of God. But it will be a curse to anyone who seeks to find righteousness outside of Jesus. It is a reminder that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And Paul says, no, the law is not bad. The law doesn't kill. It's holy. It's righteous. It's good. But why? Why is the law holy and righteous and good? Well, because it shows us how desperate we are for rescue. It shows us how desperate we are for rescue and we are desperate. I I, I really, I just want to caution you. I want to caution you because I feel the temptation in my heart as well and I don't think it's unique to our place and our time, certainly not, but I, I can feel it in pronounced ways right now. We would like, To remain distant from our desperation. We really would. I know that you would. You do not like feeling needy, do you? You do not like feeling dependent. You do not like the experience of desperation. But I am telling you, the life that God is inviting you to live is one where you are in constant awareness of your need for God. That is what it means to live with God. That's what it means. And I know that we, that thought is abhorrent to us. Maybe you've got a little something. Maybe you finally got some stability and security. Maybe you've got something that makes you feel really safe, that makes you feel like things are locked down. You've got some controls. You feel like, man, there was a time in which I could pack everything up in one car and drive away, but now my life is more touchable. I'm more woundable. I've got more responsibility. You don't understand now, pastor. If I don't have a little bit more control, if I'm always feeling needy and desperate, how am I to live? Faith. Faith. Trust. Belief. Hope. Do you realize the key principles of what God is inviting you into Or about you saying, I can't do it. And God, you can. (laughs) Listen, I'm preaching this loud. Because I need to hear it. And I think that we do too. I, I know that it would be easy for us. And it is easy. You have the opportunity You have the opportunity, maybe more so than any generation before you, to live in the perpetual illusion of your own independence. If you want to live that way, you know what? You can. You can live, probably for the rest of your life, in a perpetual illusion of your own independence. And what you will find is you will find arid deserts where you could find deep wells in the presence of God. Because the law is a reminder to us. The law, this law that Israel was to follow as they were to enter into Canaan. You will find that unless at the core of your relationship to God is a passionate sense of your own desperate need, you will find this less and less enamoring. You will find this road very hard you will find it difficult and you will say, you know what? This isn't really for me. The law is a reminder of our desperate condition, a condition we would really prefer to not remember. It shows us the character of God and it shows us that we are not Him. It shows us that we're not God. So if the law is good, if the law is holy, if the law is righteous, why don't we like the law? Well, We either don't like what it says, so we avoid it, or we try to approach it in our own strength, and it crushes us. And that's what Paul is saying. We're tempted when we hear God's standard, God's word, and God's law. We are tempted to think, you know what? I can do this on my own, and when we try, we fail, and so we give up. Or we say, you know what? I don't even really care what God has to say about this. I'm just going to do what I would do anyways, And so we end up avoiding God's law and building a faith or a religion that is kind of Christian but only in name only. It's a set of principles and values that we adhere to, but there's not really a passionate sense of our need for God because we've kind of already admitted to ourselves we don't really think we need Him. But the law is an ever-present reminder of just how great our need is. And maybe for some of you, you're thinking, well, hold on, when did I ever agree to this law to begin with? When did I ever sign a contract to say I would uphold this law? What does this have to do with me? Well, everything. Your representative, Adam, heard God's law in the garden, and he broke it. And he acted on your behalf. He acted on your behalf, and you were born. I am born guilty because of it. Whether we feel guilty or not, we are guilty. In addition, God didn't leave the world wondering about what his law said. It's not like he left us kind of questioning it. We're uncertain about it. He, he, he told us. He told us in the natural law that is written on our hearts. He told us in his revealed word. He told us in the life and the living of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so scripture says, as Paul has already said in Romans, we're born with no excuse. We are born guilty. We are born in a desperate condition. The law has sentenced us to death. But we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay there. This is where Paul's going, and I can't preach a sermon in good conscience and leave you hanging here. i got to spoil the story. Paul is telling you that, guess what? He wants you to feel, in this passage, he wants you to feel like, well, what are we supposed to do then? And his response at the end of Romans 7, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where he's taking you. He's not taking you to an exhortation to say, you better work harder, you better be tough, you better work smart, you better figure this out, you better fix it on your own. He's leading you to Jesus because the law demonstrates the gap between where we are and where God is. And you cannot fill that gap with anything but the work of Christ. There are really three options when it comes to dealing with God's law. Let me give them to you. The first, you can try to do the law without grace. And that's what much of Israel had been trying to do for thousands of years. They had been trying to live out the law without grace. You can attempt to do that. I think many of you are attempting to do that. You're striving and you're exhausted from it because you want to impress him. And guess what? He's not impressed with you. And he's not going to be. And even if you're not behaving like that's how God operates, you're still living in a world that operates that way, constantly. So your default assumption is, well, if this is what's expected of me from my mom or my dad or my boss or my husband or my wife or my kids or my neighbor or my coworker or my friend, that that must be how God relates to me too. And it's not. But we end up living that way anyways. You can try to obey the law without grace. And if you do, you will fail and you will be condemned by it. You will fail and be condemned by it. For others, you can reject God's law. And some of you are attempting to do this. You've said, you know what? I actually don't care what God has to say. And maybe you haven't, like, just like, that's not how you would write it down, you know, on your bio, but that's how you're living. You've decided, you know what? I actually really don't care what God has to say about my life, about my home, about what it means to be a man, about what it means to be a woman. I don't really care what what God has to say about how to raise my kids. I don't really care what God has to say about um, how we spend our money. I don't really care what God has to say about His vision for my life and flourishing. I don't really care what God has to say about the world. I don't care what God has to say about the stranger, the sojourner, the immigrant. I don't really care what God has to say about the poor. I really don't care what God has to say about my neighbor. I really don't care. And you just said, you know what? Not for me. You look at the law, and you say, no, I'm not playing by those rules, and and that's a way to live. You can do that. And at the end, you will still be judged by the law that you rejected. It's fixed. It's not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. God has said, this is the way things are, and he's the one that gets to make that judgment. You can reject God's law, and if you reject God's law and persist in that rejection, you will be rejected by God it will produce death. But there's another way. There's another way. You can seek to obey the law on the foundation of grace. And for every sermon in Romans 6 and 7, we've basically been saying the same thing, just slightly different each week. Because this is what Paul is trying to get you to. He's trying to get you to accept the invitation to walk in obedience on the foundation of grace. Not to try to walk in obedience so that you might earn grace. Paul knows you never could. Not to walk in obedience just so that you can spurn and spite God. Paul knows that's the path to death and rejection. No, he's inviting us over and over again to embrace a kind of dependency on the righteousness of God that doesn't lead us away from walking in God's ways, but leads us running to walking in God's ways. He's inviting us to say, Your relationship to the law, your relationship to God's standards, His pathways of obedience is this it's paved with grace. The way into God's kingdom is not paved with your works, it is paved with the grace of God, and the pathways are the pathways of righteousness. So you can say, I do care what God says about this thing. And even though I'm seeking to obey and I know I'll fall short, when I fall, I will fall into the faithfulness of God. I will fall into the refreshing waters of God's rescue. I will fall into the pit, not of shame, but of grace. God will lift me up. He will bring me back. He will rescue me. And when he puts my feet on solid ground, I will seek once again to walk in his faithful ways. That's what God is inviting us into. That is a better way. That is a better way. The law of God, think about it like this, is like an anchor, The law of God is like an anchor. It is all about where you put it, you know? The law of God is like an anchor. It's all about where you put it and what it's attached to. If you tether the law of God to a new righteousness received by grace through faith in Jesus, it will keep you stable during the storms of life. But if you try to walk into the oceans of this world, carrying the law of God on your shoulders, it will drag you down to the depths of the sea. The law of God will either be an anchor of your salvation in confusing and disorienting times, or it will be a constant symbol of your condemnation that you have chosen to go your way without God. Paul wants us to see there is an invitation to a better way. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond? Four things. I'm gonna leave you with this. We acknowledge that God's ways are better than our own. We acknowledge that God's ways are better than our own. Let me just ask you a question that I want you to think on. Where are you right now? If you're a Christian, where are you right now living without any reference to God? Just consider it. Where is there an area in your life where you're living without any reference to God? I don't know where that is for you, but where is it? Where are you living without any reference to God, his word, and his ways? Acknowledge it. Name it. Write it down. Say it. Confess it. Because that's the next step. We confess that. We confess where we are living out of alignment with God's way. We confess where we are living out of alignment with God's word. We, we name it and we say it. We say, that's where it is, and we say it out loud to God Into other brothers and sisters in Christ that we trust. We say, I am walking out of alignment with God's way in this world. We acknowledge it, we confess it. And do you know what we do then? We receive. We receive grace. We receive grace from God as He reminds us that His mercy and love is for us in Jesus. And we receive grace from brothers and sisters in Christ as they tell us what 1 John says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We receive the good news back as a gift, as a reminder that what they are telling us is what God has for us, which is inexhaustible wells of grace in Jesus. And lastly, we seek. We seek, having received grace, and this is the part where many of us stop. We acknowledge it, we confess it, we receive, and then we're done. It's like an etch-a-sketch. We shake it up. But no, God doesn't just want to erase where we've done wrong. God wants to draw a more beautiful story on our life. And so we begin to seek to walk in the paths of righteousness for the sake of the name of God, for his glory, and for witness unto Christ. We begin to walk in His ways, having received grace, having been reminded of the foundation that we stand on, we now look to walk in faith and faithfulness to God and His ways in this world. I know there are sermons in which um, it can feel like, man, that was a, that was a hard word. Um, and it is. Paul doesn't have like good advice for us in Romans seven. Paul has a tension that he's wanting to put us in. And he wants to put you in this crucible. It's almost written intentionally as if to stay in this kind of weird in-between place. Now, we're not going to stay there for long. He's going to bring us to hope. And Romans 8 is the Mount Everest of the book of Romans. That's where he's taking us. But before he gets us there, it is a long slog up that hill. He wants us to stay in this crucible because he knows that it is in that place where faith is formed and forged, where we begin to realize God must do the great work, because he must, because we need him to, and because he stands ready today to receive all of those who will say, God, I know that I have fallen short. I am in desperate need for your grace. Rescue me that I may walk in your ways. And he still does that same work today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, asking you to bless the preaching of your word, asking you to remind us of what we would often seek to forget, that we are needy for you and that your word and your law reminds us of our desperate condition. And so God, I pray that you would, that you would show it, that you would demonstrate it to us. I pray that you would awaken within us a sense of just how great our need is and that you would meet us in that place with the mercies of Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me?